Since 2005, Blue Hat has been where the security research community and Microsoft come together as peers. To debate and discuss, share and challenge, celebrate and learn. On the Blue Hat podcast, join me, Nick Fillingham. And me, Wendy Zanoni, for conversations with researchers, responders and industry leaders, both inside and outside of Microsoft. Working to secure the planet's technology and create a safer world for all. And now, on with the Blue Hat podcast. Welcome to the Blue Hat Podcast, Sherrod Grippo. Sherrod, thank you for joining us on the Blue Hat Podcast. It's great to have you. I'm so excited to be here, but I am a little disappointed that you're not wearing your outfit from Black Hat Party. I am not. I, if you want me to pause the recording, <laughs> I could run upstairs and put it on if that would make you feel better. I'll be honest, every time you aren't wearing it, I'm always going to be disappointed. So I think it's just something I have to get used to. All right. For people that don't know what we're talking about, maybe I'll uh, link to the photo <laughs> from the MSRC party that was in Las Vegas uh, at the Black Hat DEF CON time frame. It was at a place called Retro and we all sort of dressed up, or some of us dressed up in some 90s, 80s inspired funnery. Sherrod, I, I noticed you were more in your sort of trademark sort of couture. I, I didn't see much sort of neon or fluoro uh, on you that night. Was I was I mistaken? I only wear black, Nick. Okay. I don't know. Maybe we'll we'll cover that later <laughs> on the podcast. But before before we dive into that, a quick apology. My co-host Wendy is not here. Unfortunately Wendy is under the weather. She's really not feeling very well. So I'm flying solo today, but we'll carry on as best we can. Sherrod, for folks that don't know, folks that have lived lived under a rock in the cybersecurity space, who are you? What do you do? And you're you're a recent person joining Microsoft, but what should we know about Sherrod DeGrippo? I ask myself that question just about every day. My name is Sherrod DeGrippo. I've been in information security for 19 years and general tech roles for 26 years. So I've been around quite a while. So you're at least 27 years old. I'm at least 27 years old. That's correct. And I just love security, and I started in government 19 years ago. I stayed in government at the Department of Energy and NSA for a couple of years, and then immediately went into security vendors. So I've spent the past 17 years of my career at Lurik, SecureWorks, Symantec, Proofpoint, and now Microsoft, the largest security vendor. <laughs> you, you joined Microsoft less than a year ago, is that right? It's been seven months. I count every day. My gosh. And can you tell us about your this new role you're in? What are you doing? Sure. So my role is Director of Threat Intelligence Strategy. And the goal for me is to really just talk about what threat actors do. It's that key that Microsoft has all of this crazy visibility. You can just spend hours thinking about all of the things that Microsoft has from a telemetry perspective and security we talk about those threat actors, and part of my role is to make sure that Microsoft is talking about them in a way that's beneficial to consumers and enterprises, that helps our customers and the world really protect themselves, because ultimately, threat intelligence is what builds credibility. When we tell you this is what we see, this is what's happening on the landscape, that's how we show people, and we show the world, and we show the threat actors, hey, we know what's going on, and it's important that we get that out there. One of the things we like to do on this podcast is ask very basic rudimentary questions just to make sure that yes. we're not skipping over stuff that people either don't know or, or think they know or, or, you know, it's that it's that Chris Pratt 
meme from when uh, Parks and Rec where it's, I don't know what the, I can't remember the exact thing, but it's like, I don't know what this is and now I'm too afraid to ask. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So I wanted to, I wanted to sort of get your definition of when you say threat actor, mm. what does that mean? Because I feel like there is a, that's a relatively broad concept and it can be all the way from a nation state or a nation-state-sponsored group down to sort of individual chaos agents and sort of everything in between, right? I love this question. Or me on, you know, a 7 a.m. with no coffee. I'm a threat actor then. (laughs) So I think when we talk about threat actors in the threat intelligence space, we're essentially thinking about them in three broad categories. The first one is, as you mentioned, APT actors that are essentially employed by a government to perform espionage. So that's your nation state or typically your APT actors. And that's Advanced Persistent Threat, APT? That's right. APT stands for Advanced Persistent Threat. And these are typically people who are government employees. So they might go into a government office park (laughs) and begin their work. And that work is espionage against the targets that their directorate has set for them. Those are the operations that they conduct. The next broad pillar of threat actor groups is cybercrime, what people typically think of when they think of ransomware or um, stealing money from bank accounts, that kind of traditional financially motivated capability. And then we have sort of a third outlier. So if we think about the first two, APT and nation state threat actors are motivated by the goals of their particular nationality or country. Our cybercrime and crimeware actors are motivated by financial means. They're typically looking to make a payday. And then there's a third smaller section of sort of hacktivist, disruptive, and what I like to call spree actors, which means they're out there having fun. And we actually see a lot of those in the headlines a lot of times. Sometimes they're just doing it for the clout. A lot of times it's a bit pranky, a bit trolly. We don't see a ton out of that third group, but they're definitely a group that has a separate motivation from making money or carrying out nation-state objectives. And now the next question to me that follows is, okay, I'm listening to this podcast. We've got, I mean, dozens of people listen to the podcast. It's, 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 <laughs> it's amazing. Um, but they're going to span the spectrum of people that care about cybersecurity. We're going to have government employees who, who work for their local county, their state, their country. We're going to have people that work at large multinational corporations. We're going to have people that work in small businesses. We're going to have individuals. When you think about those three categories of threat actors, do they neatly line up to sort of individual audiences and sort of customer segments? And so therefore, can I like forget about some because I'm just an individual or I just have a small business with five employees? I don't need to worry about a nation state who's going to come after me with sort of a professional espionage person. Can we think of it like that or is that too sort of simplistic? No, I think that's really important. And in the industry, we typically refer to that kind of as this concept of threat modeling, right? Which I'm a little skeptical of threat modeling in general, just because I don't feel that it has a lot of academic rigor. It becomes a sort of brainstorming thought exercise, which can be fun, but doesn't always lead to a security posture being increased. Yes, there are certain threat actor groups that have certain types of targets and certain profiles that they typically go after. As an example, you mentioned like a small business. 
we don't typically see small businesses being ransomwared. We did in the really early days of ransomware, but what we found now is that often those small businesses don't have the money to pay the ransom, so the ransomware operators don't bother with them. That's not to say they never will again, but what happened was a lot of those ransomware actors figured out, hey, this is like a mom-and-pop ice cream shop. They have three locations. We want a million dollars from them. They don't even have a million dollars to give us. And so there is some element of what you have the ability to satisfy in those threat actor objectives that does somewhat determine that. On the flip side of that, I think it's really important to never discount, oh, they wouldn't be interested in me. Anybody with any kind of network or internet presence is of interest because that infrastructure can be used to obfuscate who that threat actor is. Let's take my ice cream shop example. Let's say they have a small website that's that's a WordPress site and they put their lo- their flavor profiles every season, the new flavors go up. Well, I could compromise that website and I could start logging into their newsletter. Well, in their newsletter application, they might use one of those big providers that sends out contact newsletters. In the weekly flavor list, I could attach a link that goes to malware and that malware is then downloaded onto all the customers of the ice cream shop. So never underestimate the value of what you have because if you have any kind of presence, that presence can then be used to launch further attacks against other targets. So I'm the ice cream shop owner. How do I make sure I don't lose sleep about being being targeted by you know some espionage wing of, of a foreign government? And the answer is just have good basic security hygiene. Yeah, I don't think the ice cream shop's in danger of getting hit with nation state. I do think that they potentially might get hit with something like credit card or point of sale malware, where the threat actor can just sit on their point of sale machines and watch transactions go by and take credit card numbers or take money out of bank accounts. But I do think that it's important to be realistic about your threat model and not over-rotate into destroying your business and ability to operate out of paranoia. Got it, got it. I wanted to now ask you, and we're... One of the questions you asked if I could ask you, and we will get to it, it's about your love of cybercrime. And I wondered if if a way that we could get there is when we think about these threat actors, and you thought about those three distinct categories, so you sort of have the sort of espionage, nation-state APTs, you have the people that are financially motivated, and we have the, the spree chaos agents. From what I understand, there can often be an overlap between those first, well, all of them, but those first two. You can actually have nation-state-sponsored groups who are actually conducting cybercrime in order to fund their operations, in order to actually secure the, the necessary money they need to continue what they're doing. Is that a sliver of what's happening out there, or, or is there actually quite a large overlap in those, those different groups? I think it's a sliver, but it's actually quite well known. What you described is exactly what we've seen from North Korea for quite a while. The regime is heavily focused in cryptocurrency and has been for quite some time. And they leverage cybercrime tactics as well as malware that's typically used by crime work groups to bring cryptocurrency into the regime and to track and potentially you know, move within the cryptocurrency markets. That's something that North Korea has actually been known for for quite some time. So there is that overlap sliver, but we don't see a ton of it, typically because governments that have the ability to create a well-funded nation-state cyber espionage program 
they typically have funding enough to not need to do much cybercrime. Got it. Okay, thank you for that distinction. So, cybercrime. I love you it. You love cybercrime. I love it. Oh, my God. How long have you loved cybercrime for, and why do you love cybercrime? I mean, I feel like I was born loving it. Really? I, I love a heist movie. Yes. I love Do you have a, a favorite? Heat. Michael Mann's Heat. Really? Okay. Yeah. Michael, so Michael Mann did Miami Vice, both the movie and the 80s TV show. And Heat has Val Kilmer, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino. It's like one one last heist, right? Like they they do a bank score. And um, so one of the things that Al Pacino says is, or I can't remember what character, but he's like, the action is the juice. Like he's excited just to do the crime. It's not about the score. It's about the heightened excitement of the crime. And I feel like there's a lot of that that's applied to cybercrime, which is why I like it. I also think, wow, I'm not purposely trying to create like an APT versus cybercrime fight in the industry. I swear I'm not. But um, I just feel like cybercrime is so much cooler and weirder (laughs) and crazier. (laughs) The cybercrime actors are absolutely bonkers and just there's nothing out of reach for them a lot of times that they will do any kind of crazy thing. So I love cybercrime. This could be a can of worms, but like when you say cybercrime, you know, I asked you about defined threat actors Mm -hmm. or or at least, you know, what are the big buckets? (sighs) What are the big buckets of cybercrime? How do we, and and, you know, where where are you excited to focus your attention and, and energy and sort of understanding and, you know, disrupting cybercrime? So there's a lot of financially motivated attack chains, essentially, that, you know, can lead to all kinds of things from taking money out of a bank account to having someone um, transfer money to you to having malware that runs and does password stealing and then uses those credentials to log in to become someone else, all these different things. I think the cybercrime and, you know, financially motivated actor set that I find most interesting are the ones that leverage social engineering in their attacks. The combination of social engineering and technology to perform attacks at scale, it's like out of a Neil, it's like out of a Neil Stephenson book. It's like out of a, you know, Philip K. Dick novel. It's just, I'm going to emotionally manipulate this person to then use technology to take their money. I just find it absolutely, it's like a true crime podcast. It's really is true crime. It's like you're listening and watching and seeing these criminals manipulate both emotional human systems and manipulate technical systems. And I think that that combination overlap is just absolutely fascinating. So it's the it's sort of the ingenuity and creativity of ultimately the yeah. humans behind the scenes that are coming up with these, as you say, bonkers plays that, you know, feel like they come out of a novel or a film, but are actually being, you know, hap- they're happening to real, real people and real organizations. So that's, that's the thing that sort of grips you. The creativity and the ingenuity and the leveraging of technology in those ways really fascinates me. And I think that if everyone kind of sits for a minute and closes their eyes and thinks, if I needed to do some kind of crime, say I needed $10,000 and I wanted to do it from my house, what would I do? And most technical people, you don't have to be super, super technical. Most people who've used a computer could say, well, I know that there's these kiosks at the mall. 
and you can use them to buy gift cards from. And I could get someone's bank account information, or I would send an email to this person, and it would look like this. It would be from this person. Everyone has the ability to craft these very creative attacks, and we see that creativity in action from the cybercrime actors, which I think is what I find so fascinating about it, is that they've made these thought exercises real, and it gives us this opportunity to create detection engineering and threat intelligence profiles that are actionable to stop those threat actors. And it's just as creative to stop them because you have to know what they're going to do next. And I think that that's part of why I like that psychology so much is because if we're going to stop these threat actor groups, we have to understand who they are and how they think. And so that creativity, you think, whoa, that's a lot of creativity that I didn't have. We have to use that same creativity to come up with detections and capabilities to stop them. And so in in sort of broad terms, how do you do that? Because in some instances, I assume these threat actors are not individuals. They're groups. They're and, groups. And you're, you're, you're not going to be able to get down to the name, the demographic, the psychological motivations of the individual in the group. You have to, you know, you still have to stay at that sort of, mac, not quite macro, but that sort of group layer and that group level. So how do you do that? Is it like how much of it is psychology? How much of it is is social studies? How much of it is it is is understanding humanity and the way that people think and the way that that creativity sort of moves and and interfaces with with humanity? Like how much of it is that? Nick, it's all of that. It's I all love of that. that. But I then you've got to like turn it into a script that you can. Yeah, you put have to turn it into ADR. a signature on the network. <laughs> well, so from that point of view, what I think is so interesting about that is that we have a little bit of an edge as detection engineers, which is called low-hanging fruit. A lot of these crimeware groups go after low low-hanging fruit. They take the path of least resistance. They go for where there's the less least friction. And that causes them to make mistakes. It causes them to not be diligent. And that's part of one of the things that I really like about it is that they don't really work under constraints. They work under laziness a little bit. They work under whatever is easiest, right? So the crimeware groups, they just have to get it done and they do huge volumes of attacks. And hey, if one works, great. I'll just keep moving. APT doesn't operate like that, right? They have very specific targets. They have really small campaigns. And the crime actors, they have this big, broad internet to play in. And so they are really wild. While at the same time, we see, oh, they're just trying to do the easiest possible thing they can. So from a detection perspective, you think, okay, I found the easy thing they're doing. What's one level harder? Okay, we could stop that. What's one level a little, okay. And so you start working up from, the super easy attack chain that the crimeware actor has chosen, and you start making it harder and harder, which is that concept of imposed cost. Got it. And then what is the ultimate goal with shutting down a, a cybercrime group or, or an actor? And I guess I guess what I what I sort of mean is that, okay, there are these individuals out there who are genuinely you have some genuine intelligence and creativity and maybe even some some genius. Mm-hmm. And if you just we'll put aside for a second the the fact that they are committing crimes and there are crimes that need to be prosecuted and these people potentially jailed, et cetera, et cetera. But 
is part of this work, and I'm maybe I'm going off on a tangent here, but is part of this work trying to actually bring those people over to the good side? How do you go like, wow, this group clearly has some incredibly smart people in them. How do we get them out of that work? And how do we get them into the you know, sort of the good side? How do we sort of get them using their their smarts and their ingenuity for for good and not for crime? I think there's a bit of a fallacy with that because okay. many of these threat actors don't see what they do as problematic in any way. Oh, they see it as a job. And in many of the Eastern European and Russian crime where actors, they just kind of see it as like software development and they know they're making money, but they just don't really see it as a real kind of victim behind the scenes. I think some of the really large ransomware actors understand that, but for the most part, they don't really have remorse or the feeling that they're doing crime. To them, they have a tech job. And I think that that's something, especially in the West, that we haven't fully wrapped our minds around a lot of times is that it's not really crime to them. It's just kind of some tech stuff that they're doing and it makes money. And so I think in terms of like bringing them over to the law-abiding side, I think that they feel they are. That is fascinating. I assumed that there would be some percentage that maybe thought that way or that, you know, couldn't be enticed with a sort of a moralistic argument. But to hear that might be sort of a, a much larger percentage of cybercrime. That's that's really interesting. Do you think some of these people are so removed from the names and profiles and understanding who the actual sort of victim is here that on their end, all they're they're just writing code and they're seeing some sort of dashboard go up showing that money is coming into an account and at the end of the day they 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 feel like they've done a good job because they've written the code that's created the money and they get to go home and celebrate. Yeah, I think it's more that. <laughs> so, a, another way to remember another thing to remember here is that for years and years and still although the situation is quite different for crimeware when it comes to Russia now, but for years and years it wasn't really illegal or prosecuted to be a Russian citizens sitting in Russia directing malicious attacks outward, out of the country. And those weren't really prosecuted. I'm sure they still are not prosecuted, although things are quite different from the sanctions perspective. But they would sit in Russia, most of the threat groups, from the crimeware perspective. And when they would send these attacks out to the West, the West wasn't really seen as a victim because, one, you weren't going to be prosecuted for it. And two, if you didn't leave the country— there are no repercussions other than, as you said, a dashboard with a bank account incrementing up and up and up in an automated way. And that's where some of those jokes, if you've ever heard about the yacht on the Black Sea, come from. These threat actors can't leave the country because they are on lists, they are known, but if they're going to stay in a country that doesn't criminalize what they do, you're sort of at an impasse there. And until they reach the level of some of the almost you know, kind of close to operational shutdown type ransomware events, they're not super on the top priority list of a lot of law enforcement. You have to really reach a certain threshold of destruction to get on that radar because ultimately a lot of that falls to people like Microsoft, to organizations like Microsoft to, hey, let's protect our customers. Let's work together, you know, security vendors to protect this because ultimately crime's going to crime. And they just don't see it as um, a thing that they're afraid of or feel guilty about. Wow. 
I have so many more questions, but I'm, I'm going to change gears <laughs> a little bit <laughs> because this podcast isn't just about me getting to ask you questions. It is about bringing you know, information to listeners and, and sort of talking about the outputs and the benefits of, of a lot of this work that you're talking about. So you're about to launch a podcast in which you're going to bring a lot of this threat intelligence and information on threat actors to an audience via the podcast medium on a regular basis. Do you want to tell us a bit about that and then what folks can expect? Sure. So I am currently working on the Microsoft Threat Intelligence Podcast, which I have set my goal to be the weirdest thing at Microsoft, which I don't think will be too hard. Yeah, Ooh. you've got competition of the I, weirdest thing. All right, I know. Wow, we might have to have a conversation about that. Okay. I know. But I do, I want people to hear the behind-the-scenes stories of chasing the threat actors, the people that are doing this work day in, day out on the ground. It really does have that element of what's the tradecraft on the other side, right? So we've got all of these espionage actors sponsored by their particular country. They're very talented and smart. They have objectives and they carry out their operations Who's at Microsoft working to track, stop, detect, and write who they are and what they're doing? So if you love the Microsoft Threat Intelligence blog, I think that's a really good entry point to the podcast is we have those authors on the podcast to tell us, okay, so what really happened? The blog is a great intelligence briefing, but how did you get all this? And it's been fascinating so far. Do we know when we can expect the first episode? We're hoping to have it out mid-October. Mid-October. And that is also when we'll be happening the next Blue Hat conference. I'm so excited. Can I tell a Blue Hat story? Please tell a Blue Hat story. So I have been to Blue Hat before when I was a Microsoft partner. I guess it was, I think, 2018. And I met someone there named Paul Melson. And Paul Melson runs something called Scumbots, which is a botnet tracker. And he is like one of my idols. I have respected and followed his detection engineering and forensics capabilities for years and years and years. And I met him at Blue Hat and we got left behind by the bus, a couple of us, and to go like to the, you know, evening event. And we're stuck on the Microsoft campus in Redmond and it's dark. It's like nighttime. It's raining. It's November in the Seattle area. It's, it's damp. It's like, you know, and so there were a couple of us and we kind of looked at Paul Melson and said, Paul, do you have a car? And Paul did have a car. And so I had a, a little rescue mission. Paul Melson did an immediate evac for me and got me and a couple of people off of the Microsoft campus back to the hotel area so that we didn't have to sleep in a Redmond conference room. Wow, that's not where I thought your story was going to go. <laughs> but uh, shout out to Paul Melson. I wonder if Paul is going to be at Blue Hat uh, in October. Oh, I should ask him. So um, Paul works at Target. So he's one of the very famous Target InfoSec team like team members. Target's InfoSec team, shout out. Like, they're so good. Do you know what year that was? Remember what year that was? I that think Blue it Hat? was 2018. 2018, got it. Well, uh, the next Blue Hat, yeah, is is October 11th and 12th, back on the Redmond campus. We will hopefully be back in the Microsoft Conference Center, Building 33. And Sherrod, you have gone from being an attendee to I being <gasps> in our cab. You were a member of our content advisory board, which is a fancy way of saying that um, you very, very graciously read through all of the abstracts of all the papers that were submitted and helped us select the papers that are going to turn into the sessions at the conference. And so, first of all, 
may I just say on behalf of the whole team at, at the Blue Hat team and MSRC, thank you so much for, for your time and for your support. It means a lot. And thank you to everyone else on the cab some of who have been on the podcast and uh, some who will who will be hopefully in upcoming episodes. Tell us about that. So have you been on cabs for other security conferences and, you know, you don't have to say who was better and how that we were much better than everyone else. But, you know, what, what's that experience like? And, 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 you know, what would you like to share about being on the Blue Hat Cab? Well, so I'm on one other board and that is for SleuthCon, the Cybercrime Congress, because I love cybercrime. <laughs> But I loved the Blue Hat submissions because they were somewhat, to a certain degree, off the beaten path of what I'm used to seeing. There was a lot of heavy research, a lot of vuln discovery, a lot of bug bounty type papers, as well as threat intelligence. Nick helped me make heads and tails of how to do it, how to look for the right things. And I love your willingness to just really sit and think about how does this fit into the overall programming? What is this going to be like for attendees? Everyone should know that Blue Hat is so carefully handled and curated and thought about, both from a perspective of making it valuable, but also making it fun and interesting for attendees and speakers. And Nick, you're killing it. I'm I'm already fascinated, but it's definitely one of those things where there's so many options and you're like, oh, I want this one, I want this one, I want this one, I want this one. And there isn't enough room, obviously, but the submissions are incredible. They really got me thinking about lots of new cool ideas. Yeah, we we had uh, 115 papers submitted. Oh my gosh. Um, which is amazing. It's a huge, huge, huge number. And we really would have loved to be able to accept all of them. There was literally nothing that we read it and went, oh, well, this there's, there's no way this could be a Blue Hat session. Mm-hmm, e- mm-hmm. Everything everything seemed relevant and really, really interesting. When you were reading through them and you were adding in your your votes and stuff, sort of how did you, you know, some of the stuff, I, I know from reading your comments, you're like, oh, I'm personally excited for this. Mm-hmm. This really excites me. <laughs> so then how do you sort of balance that up with with thinking about, well, the broader sort of industry and and, and other folks in InfoSec that will be coming to Blue Hat and, and, and what they might like to see and what they might like to learn about? That's a great question. I think... And I'm kind of a little bit of a proponent of bias. I think that it's okay to have likes and preferences and come with an agenda as long as you're open about that, right? Like, I'm the threat intelligence strategist. I have a biased agenda toward threat intel. That's my thing. But I also want to have this bias toward making sure everyone has a really good experience. And so I looked around things and I did pick quite a few, you know, that I thought, I know nothing about this. I have never heard of this before. I imagine that quite a few people also would be a little like intrigued on some of these that they've never heard of or thought of before. I also found it interesting that while we did have quite a few AI-focused sessions, AI was not a massive, massive, overwhelming theme. And I think that's because a lot of the people submitting to Blue Hat they're almost to the point where they've integrated AI into things already, where it's not a separate thing to a lot of them now. It's become very much a, like we have like co-pilots or it's become a thing that's like an assistant that you grab onto. And I think that's how AI is going to keep going. It's going to become this more seamless thing. And I think I saw some of that in the presentation body that we got. Yeah, it's really interesting you say that. There definitely was... I too thought it was interesting that we weren't inundated with AI and, and ML and uh, GPT and ChatGPT uh, focused papers, but there was a, a really, really interesting, I'll say balance. And what what mm-hmm. hopefully you'll see at, at Blue Hat is that there are going to be 
some researchers and, and analysts and, and, and folks that are presenting on how AI is, is a tool and is going to be beneficial and, and how we can, we can use it now as a tool for responders and researchers in this space. And then there will also be people that will sort of be countering that narrative a little bit, not, not saying that it's not a tool and it's not useful, but sort of talking more about the, some, some of the risks and, and the threats that we need to consider and think about. And I think it's going to be fascinating to have those two sort of, I'll say sort of competing or, or at least uh, somewhat challenging sort of conversations happening. And we're, we're going to see that with a lot of different topics. That's one of the things that I am biased and I'm glad that you love bias because my bias is that I obviously love Blue Hat. I'm excited about mm. Blue Hat. And I'm excited to bring different perspectives and different viewpoints of, of some of these topics into the same space and putting them on the same stage and allowing someone to stand up and say, you know, here's something that I think you all should be worried about or here's a, here's a particular threat I think you need to think about. And then someone saying, well, here's how I'm going to turn that into an actual tool or an actual opportunity to, to do something that we haven't done before. So I think that's really exciting. Are you going to be, are we going to see you on stage at all at Blue Hat? Is that, do we know about this? I think so, yes. Oh. I think that I will be on stage at Blue Hat, perhaps nice. with, I'm hoping, with my boss. I'm hoping. Yes. No, well, most people probably don't say that, do they? I would really love to be on stage with my boss. So I'm hoping that I will get to be on stage with my boss. Excellent. When this episode comes out, I'm not sure if we will have actually confirmed, but yes, your boss is John Lambert. Yeah, wow. The Microsoft Security Fellow, the one and literal only Microsoft security fellow, John Lambert. John Lambert. And uh, John has, I, I don't think I can say at this point what John's agreed to do, but John will be on stage at some point at Blue Hat talking about, I mean, it doesn't matter what he talks about. It's going to be incredible. No, I know. John Lambert is one of the people that I respect most in the industry. He, for those of you who've never read it, GitHubification of security. Google up, GitHubification of security, go read it. It will change your perspective on the way you think about security. Before we leave on that plug, I did want to sort of ask you a bit more about, about you and when you're not getting ready for Blue Hat and when you're not fanning out over uh, uh, cybercrime, what, what, what else can we know about you? What else should we know about Sherrod DeGrippo? Oh, you have, a, you have a puppy? I haven't, yes. I have a little space alien that lives in my house named Boris Karloff. He's a rescue dog. He came from the shelter. And I have Boris Facts. Boris, fact number one is that he has been shot. So he still by has BBs in him by a gun. Yes. Oh, wow. Boris Karlo Karloff has been shot. He's fine. Okay. But um, he was stray, so he had a rough time. He lives in a beautiful home in downtown Atlanta now. He's fine. And he has a tattoo. And Ooh. you don't meet a lot of dogs with a tattoo. He has a tattoo of a green line, and that was given to him by the shelter that they give to stray dogs when they are picked up and neutered. So he's marked with a tattoo to indicate that he was stray. Wow. How does Boris feel about this? He does not care at all if you have cheese for him. He'll not worry about it. If you have a taco or pizza, he loves like junk food. He has a very Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle diet. Got it. Preference, a diet preference. I don't actually feed him like a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. He eats healthy dog food. But if he had his choice, he would probably just only eat pizza and chicken nuggets. Yeah. You you know this because at some point he has eaten pizza and chicken nuggets and gone, oh my God, this is the best <laughs> thing ever. So when I first got him, he was very underweight. And the rescue organization, Angels Among Us in Atlanta, said, you need to really feed him. He really needs to eat. And he wouldn't eat. He was very sick. And I went and got him 
a bacon cheeseburger from fast food. And I gave him just the bacon, like I gave him the whole bacon cheeseburger, which is not healthy. You should not give that for your dog. But it was kind of an emergency. He was very sick. He wouldn't eat. And he ate that cheeseburger. And ever since then, he's like, I want junk food. I give him a little bite of chicken or a little piece of hamburger here and there. Awesome. Why Boris Karloff? Does he bear a resemblance to, was it Frankenstein's monster? No. It's Frankenstein's monster or was Boris Karloff, yeah. Right. Does he bear, like, is that where it came from? That was his shelter name that the shelter gave him. Oh. And I said, yes, that is his name. And I didn't change it. I deliberately thought, yeah, Boris Karloff. Because I, I was going to say, like, if you didn't name him that, it, it almost sounds like one of those, you know, APT. Uh, <laughs> like they're social engineering me. Yeah, the dog bugs. Oh, ex- my God. Exactly right. But but that's not that's not what it is. No, I've checked him thoroughly for listening devices. Have you x-rayed him? Actually, yeah. He's been x-rayed quite a few times. Got it. So there aren't any embedded listening devices where you, you, you feel confident that he's not, he's not a plant. I don't feel that he has the skill and executive function. Fair enough. Does, not, will he be coming, smart. coming to uh, Redmond with you? Does he travel with you? Oh, okay. So he actually cannot come to Redmond, but he will be. I am the keynote at B-Sides Atlanta, and he will be at B-Sides Atlanta on October 14th. So if you want to see him, he's at B-Sides Atlanta. Oh, so you're, you're leaving Blue Hat and heading straight back home for B-Sides Atlanta. Wow. That's right. Okay. Well, and obviously to head back to, to Boris. Before we let you go, Sherrod, anything else you would like to plug? Do we know where we can go to pre-subscribe for the podcast? Or do you know what the URL will be? So when it comes out, we can just head straight there. You said uh, SleuthCon, you're on the board there. You're going to be speaking at B-Sides Atlanta. What, what else What else can we plug? Oh, I will be also at Microsoft Ignite. So I'll be back, back in Seattle for Microsoft Ignite as well. Um, talking about the year in review for Threat Actor and Threat Landscape, which I'm really excited about. So Ignite is in November, and that is in Seattle, November 14th to 17th. Check that out because we're going to be talking at like a really nice overall technical level about the threat landscape. I'm really excited about that. The Microsoft Threat Intelligence podcast will be coming soon in the place where you get all of your podcasts, and we'll get the link out for show notes. Awesome. We'll get that link in there. And uh, SleuthCon? Oh, I don't know when the next SleuthCon is. I will be at CyberWarCon, though, November 9th. Wonderful. And if you are listening to this podcast and you will be joining us for Blue Hat on October 11th and 12th, Sherrod, you'll be there. Can people come say hi? Oh, so I am going to be at the Threat Intelligence Village with the incredible Jessica Payne. I'm so excited to work with her on Threat Intelligence Village. Please come say hello. I will have stickers if you... Ask me for a sticker, you will get one. Any other like little tidbits, little sneak peek of what's going to happen at the Threat Intelligence Village? What's on the sticker? You know, any anything else that you just we sort might, of wet people's we appetite? We might have a, a pub trivia. We might have a pub trivia opportunity. Oh, that yeah, sounds good. Yeah, we might good. be doing quiz trivia quizzes for prizes. Awesome. Well, I look forward to your podcast. I look forward to the impending weirdness arms race that we are yes. entering into. Yes. Oh, Microsoft is so lucky to have us. Oh my gosh. <laughs> the um, weirdness arms race begins. Today. Oh, I love it. I love it. Wendy, I know you'll listen to this episode. We have to get up, put our heads together and work out how to get super weird. Thank you so much for being a part of the Blue Hat Cab. Thank you so much for agreeing to support us, to being on the podcast. I'm looking forward to your podcast. It's been great to meet you, Sherrod. Thank you for having me, Nick. I really enjoyed it. And I want everyone to know that you are a killer party planner. That was one of my favorite parties. Oh, say more. 
I just loved it. I got to eat a lot of really good food. The music was good. I loved the um, people walking around with the photo booths. I loved the vibe, the 80s, 90s vibe. That's my jam. And I also loved semi-bullying the DJ to play the music that I wanted to hear. That's always fun. It's, and it's always fun when the DJ sort of, you know, yeah, doesn't quite acquiesce immediately. They sort of like give you a bit of a cold shoulder and then you sort of warm up to them and then eventually they play, you know, bust a move seven times. I wanted to hear Big Country. That's one of my favorite 80s songs. By and, Go uh, West? No, what's that one? Big Country by Big Country. Oh, in a big country. Y- yeah. With you. That's a great yes, song. Yes, that's one of my favorite songs ever. Um, Lovely. Yeah, so he played it for me. That was cool. Awesome. Great. Well, we'll see you in Redmond on October 11th. I'll see you then. Thanks, Jared. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for joining us for the Blue Hat Podcast. If you have feedback, topic requests, or questions about this episode, please email us at bluehat at microsoft.com or message us on Twitter at MSFTBlueHat. Be sure to subscribe for more conversations and insights from security researchers and responders across the industry by visiting bluehatpodcast.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.